it's really just increasing customers' willingness to pay, decreasing minimum compensation for employees, and then there's nothing else. And that, in, in my experience working with companies, ends up being incredibly liberating. And so reducing the number of projects, the number of initiatives, and then really focusing in on the ones that have the potential to increase willingness to pay and decrease minimum compensation. That's really the heart of what strategy is all about. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Felix Oberholzer G. Felix, I hope I didn't butcher your name too badly. Felix is a professor at Harvard Business School. Absolutely charismatic guy. Found himself there. He said, he says when I'm talking to him, at 18, he would never imagine himself as a Harvard Business School professor. There was no way he could see away from where he lived in the German part of Switzerland to being where he is today. So no real strategic intent on his part to get to where he is, but he teaches strategy and he has written an absolutely fantastic book called Better Simpler Strategy. When we're working with clients, we often talk about willingness to pay drivers and he's written a fantastic book based on his empirical studies, looking at the interconnection of willingness to pay drivers and what he calls willingness to sell, which is where your employees are prepared to sell you their time and perhaps sell their time to somebody else and therefore leave your organization and go somewhere else. So if you think about a restaurant, uh, if, the, if the staff give great service, the customers are willing to pay more, the customers are willing to come back again, that allows you to pay your employees more. That means you maybe get better waiting staff. Maybe you don't. the staff have got a lower willingness to sell and stay longer. And you get this, in a services business, you get this amazing co-joint activity of being able to put your price up and also therefore share some of that wealth or, or, or have benefits to the employees and it becomes a, a flywheel. So we talk about that. And I think in this world where people are obsessing about availability of talent, it's, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. So he's got the book. Uh, he's launching a course in September, Harvard Business School online course available in September. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. He's also got a podcast where he and two other Harvard Business School professors just chat after hours. So again, there's a link to that in the show notes. I had a fantastic time chatting to him. We laughed a lot and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. I am Felix Oberholzer-G. I'm a faculty member at Harvard Business School in the strategy unit. 
I'm uh, the author of a recent book on strategy, Better, Simpler Strategy. I'm fascinated by performance differences across companies. One of my favorite things to do is to look at two companies that seem very similar to me. Maybe I shopped at both places and they seem very comparable. And then think about how can it be that one is so much more successful than others? Um, I have a background in business economics. I grew up, maybe you can tell by my accent, I grew up in Switzerland, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. Um, but I've lived in the United States and I've taught at various business schools for quite some time now. It's funny, that sort of business model thing, certainly through covid it was really interesting to look at restaurants, local restaurants. And, you know, you might take three restaurants on the same street. You know, COVID happened. They all shut down. Yeah. And then there's an opportunity to, to, to open up. And, you know, one doesn't open up at all. One opens up and, you know, is open a little bit. The other one starts doing delivery. You know, one's using the estate agency car park as a cafe area next door. You know, good friends of ours who've got a hotel and a restaurant ended up finishing that first year. Their revenue was up on the year, even though they were closed for a big chunk. Isn't that amazing? It's, fa it's yeah. fascinating. It's one of my favorite things about business that somehow in, in many business conversations, we've actually forgotten at the center of everything is creativity, is imagination. If you find new ways to serve your customers or if you find new ways to engage the people in your organization, that's what ultimately creates financial success. We're obsessed with financial success. And then you would think one corollary is that we're thinking about imagination all the time. We're thinking about how to be more creative. And those seem to be concerns that don't really get much air. And I don't, I don't quite understand why. Did this fascination with strategy happen to you is that, is that why you're a professor or did you end up being a professor and this ended up being your fascination? What came first? <laughs> so actually, I never wanted to be an academic. And it's mostly to do with if you had told me when I was, I don't know, 18 or 20, that I would ever be associ even associated with an institution like Harvard University, I would have laughed you out of the room. I had literally no reason to believe that something like this could, could ever really happen. And so this is maybe now a little less common than, than today. But um, when I started work after graduating from university, it was very common to go back at some point in time to get your PhD, to have sort of like break through the ceiling of upper management. And you see it even today, if you look at German car companies, they're like typically the CEOs is, you know, they're all doctors, professor this, professor that. So this marrying of uh, corporate careers and academic engagement that was very common at that point in time, that essentially led me to go back uh, to get my PhD, not really thinking that I might be an academic, but just thinking, you know, it will open up career paths that otherwise might be might be closed. And as a result, the uh, doctoral programs in Europe, they're not really geared towards making you an excellent academic. They're as much geared towards helping you a better, helping you be a better manager, help you be more successful at your job. And sort of this combination of business skills, applied ideas around business and academic research. That really what made me fall in love with academia eventually. And then, you know, 
led me to led me to the position that I have today. But this was like talking about no strategy, no planning. Uh, this was <laughs> this was definitely the case for myself. Okay, brilliant. So I suspect if I searched on Amazon for books on business strategy, there'd be a few. <laughs> well, so <laughs> on page five hundred and eighty-two, <laughs> you might find you might find what I have written. So, uh, so why why did you fail? What was what's the gap? What what? Well, maybe maybe there is no gap, but it's just your itch you felt compelled to scratch. But but you've written you've written a fantastically compelling book on strategy, which has fits really well with you know the way I talk to clients about strategy and try to educate them on the choices they're trying to make. So, why did you write it? What were you trying to do? As part of my uh, teaching responsibilities, I teach in executive education at the Harvard Business School. And many of these managers, they're highly accomplished. They're mid-career professionals. Many of them go on to do really great things. And I had two observations that really puzzled me at the beginning. One was strategy was seen as something very complicated, very intricate, only a few, you know, maybe the board can think about strategy or maybe the most senior echelon of leaders in the organization can think about strategy. But if you're somewhere in the middle of the organization, you really have no business being a strategic thinker. And that, of course, flies in the face what makes strategy work, what makes strategy successful. But it was sort of carried by a notion that oh boy, you have to be really senior, gray hair, lots of experience. Otherwise, you can't be a strategic thinker. And of course, the opposite is true. Um, you give me 10 minutes and I can tell you everything about strategy you need to know. I don't really know why we have semester-long courses on strategy. We should, be, <laughs> we should be done in a day or so. And then, of course, it's as we talked about before, then it's about imagination. How do you get to be certain about the value creation that you think you've identified um, that it's real and that it will resonate with customers. And there's a lot of technique at that level, but the basic principles of strategy couldn't be more simpler. And so much of what I've written really comes out of conversations that I had in the classroom where I noticed some things are easy to understand, some things seem really challenging, but in fact, they often, they often much more, much simpler than people assume. So I love that. It's like, uh, I I speak to Michael Bungay Stanier, who said, look, I could teach people to be a coach in 20 minutes. You yes. know, and you're like, I can... <laughs> That's right. I beat him. I can do it in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I think what's interesting is that in your definition of strategy, is create, it's creativity. It's, you know, it's value proposition, creating a value proposition. That, and then we've got a hypothesis we can test. That's strategy. And then you look at an organization and, you, and it's funny because I... I was talking to uh, Lex Sisley, who wrote a book called Organizational Physics mm -hmm. uh, on the podcast last night, which will come out in a couple of weeks. And he thinks about this two by two matrix, which is, you know, sort of uh, lead generation in marketing is a, is a more cyclical thing than brand, brand strategy creation, yep. right? Yep. And so stra strategy, the way, you know, senior people, older, senior, gray haired male people doing it, it sounds like it sounds like it's a long-term slower process but the way you're describing it it sounds like it absolutely jumps into sort of the same box as lead gen and sales and iteration that's exactly right and and maybe the only distinction that i would make is it's all about value creation 
But value creation is not anything that the customer wants. Value creation is not anything that employees will be happy about. Value creation happens if you raise the willingness to pay of customers. So literally, how much would they, is it a better product? The answer is not in are people writing enthusiastic reviews. Who cares about the reviews? Uh, what I care about is do I increase their willingness to pay? the maximum that they would ever pay for a product or a service. And you know that you have really created value if, in fact, willingness to pay increases. Or on the employee side, think about someone's minimum compensation. How much money do you absolutely require? And if it's less than that, you're just not going to take the job. Now, in that view of the world, what's a better job? A better job is a job that I would take even though it provides a little less compensation. That's how I actually know that I create value. And it's, it's interesting because particularly in services businesses, people get in a room and they say, we need to make the product better. And all they do is increase their cost to deliver it. And the <laughs> yes. customer, the, they say, we need to do quarterly business reviews. Uh, we need to write a report every month. We can't automate it, so we'll, we'll put some people on that. And not once does anyone say, will the customer like this? Will it make them pay more? Yeah, that's right. And, and liking is not quite good enough, right? I see many, you know, people are good at making, improving products over time. I see many companies that do this quite predictably. But then when you, when you have this more stringent test and say, okay, it's a better product. Do I like it better? Yeah, I like it a little better. Would I, would I pay if I had to pay for those extra features? Probably not. You have not created any value. <laughs> <laughs> so, and how have you come to this because it's it's the two you call it the value uh, the uh, strategy stick, yes, uh-huh. yeah, or value stick, yes, value. Sorry, value stick. And I, you know, uh, maybe we stick with uh, maybe we stick with customers, and then we come. Do you want to, what do you want to do first? Do you want to do? Yeah, let's maybe do customers first because that's more intuitive. Yes, but I do like I do like the you know with the sort of this notion of the great resignation and you know holding on to employees. I think a lot of people will will be interested in how you then you're really applying strategy to staff retention which is fantastic but i mean it is interesting i remember talking to the guys there's a i guess not a bank but nationwide building society of a building society in the uk and i remember they had done a really interesting piece of work which looked at how profitability per branch was driven by staff longevity and so the people who sat in the financial services sales seat they could see correlation between somebody who was seven years generated more profit for the bank than somebody at five somebody at three and it was like okay well so we need to get people and we need to keep them how are we going to do that because actually if we invest money in that they'll stay and i saw somebody the other day had done uh had done some a hotel group had done some analysis that said repeat customer visits was correlated with employee longevity and they looked at their churn and they said shit if we paid 20 percent more we could recruit less and actually this whole thing becomes actually cash generative and so it's like those bothering to do that type of work, I think, is, is amazing. But let's do the customer stuff. So wh- how come you end up with this, this model? What is it, what's your empirical evidence to show that this is a thing? Yes. So you, look, you start by looking at the distribution of financial returns. I like return on invested capital as my measure of income. And I just look at the distribution within industry. And because you can see that for public companies, it's public And you can see that for public companies. And sometimes, you know, for even some private companies, you have a sense of how well they do on this metric. And there's two really interesting things that you see when you, when you start looking at that. The first one is 
you remember this advice that many people give uh, strategies thinking about where to play and how to win. It turns out where to play doesn't matter nearly as much as how to win. So the best opportunities for most companies are close to home. Don't think the grass is greener on the other side. If only I was in a different business segment, if only I was in a different country, that's always nonsense. Uh, there's so much variation where you are and those are your best single best opportunities. The lower risk. When somebody says to me, we're going to open in Australia, I'm like, why would you do that? It's halfway around the world. It's, it's something that I've always puzzled over when people are surprised that going abroad, going global would lower your average margins. Really, what exactly is surprising about that? Did you really think you could replicate the domestic success exactly what you've done in your own market? Of course not. A million things change as you go from one segment to another and you see it in the margins. So your best opportunities are close to home. And then when you look at the tail and you look at the most successful ones, frankly, when I started doing this research, I expected I'm probably going to see like super sophisticated things, you know, the kinds of things that only a few leaders can do, or maybe only a few companies have the resources and capabilities to do it. And then what you discover is, oh my God, it's so simple. It's really just increasing customers' willingness to pay, decreasing minimum compensation for employees, and then there's nothing else. And that, in, in my experience working with companies, ends up being incredibly liberating. You know how many strategy meetings that I attend is basically people are making lists. And it's long lists of things that they want to do better, long lists of things that they want to improve. And it's, of course, a total waste of time because last I checked, you were a little busy to begin with. Last I checked, it wasn't so easy to hire the talent that you wanted to hire. Now you're telling me you're going to do these extra 17 things. When? How? It's not going to happen. And so reducing the number of projects, the number of initiatives, and then really focusing in on the ones that have the potential to increase willingness to pay and decrease minimum compensation. That's really the heart of what strategy is all about. And also your willingness to pay is you could reduce costs, right? So you could, so you could drive more margin by reducing costs and leaving to willingness to pay where it is. But I've always thought that's a, a little bit less interesting. Well, so yeah, so it's it's such a great, it's such an interesting point that you bring up. So do you remember stuck in the middle? this strategy thing, like the, I guess the basic idea was you cannot be high quality and low cost at the same time, right? And that was sort of, I think it was like some version of hell for strategists. Like if you if you try to be high quality and low cost at the same time, you would it would basically end in disaster. Uh, and part of what I show in the book is that is just not true at all. We have literally dozens and dozens of examples of companies that are low cost and high quality. And the mechanism is pretty obvious in services. Did you ever get great service from a disgruntled person? No, of course not. So you make the job a better job. You get greater engagement of your employees. Next thing you know, to your banking example, next thing you know, they have they serve their customers better. And as a result, the bank is more profitable. But your employee costs stayed exactly the same. That's right. Yeah, they're exactly the same, except it's a better job. Now, we can start thinking about what is a better job. And if you look in the current environment where <laughs> we overheated our economies and so now we have to, we have to deal with you know, not enough workers for the business activities that, uh, that we want in the economy, 
the first intuition is, of course, well, I can attract talent by paying more. And that might be a reasonable thing to do, in particular, if your compensation lacks, then that's probably a first step you should think about. But at the same time, be cautious about two things. The first is more compensation doesn't actually create any value. It only redistributes value from the owners of the firm to the employees. And as I said before, that might be an okay thing to do, but don't have any illusions that you have created value. You just re redistributed where the value goes. The second thing is, if you really manage to create a better job, you get a selection effect. So take Uber ride sharing as an example. They have increased the safety of being a driver because we now know who the passenger is and we now know who, where you are and so on and so on. What's the result? They have twice as many women drivers as regular taxi companies because women now feel a little safer in an Uber as opposed to a regular car company. Yeah. Well, and vice versa, passengers as well. And passengers as well. Yeah, right. You feel more secure getting picked up in an Uber because there's people know where you are. That's exactly right. And so if you create value, if you increase willingness to pay or decrease minimum compensation, you get a selection effect also. If you just pay more, you get people who like money, which last I checked is just about everybody on the planet. You get a random scattering of people who are attracted to higher compensation. I mean, people spoke about the Great Resignation is actually a terrible term because it doesn't really describe what's going on. But what you're seeing now is that people who, who change jobs in search for a higher compensation, surprise, surprise, they show very little loyalty. Why? Well, they came for the money to begin with. And the moment money is better somewhere else, they're going to be out the door. Also, there is another thing that happens. So I was talking to a client today and he's had somebody resign because they're getting a 25% pay rise. No. And so I said, are you sorry to lose him? And he said, I can't afford to keep him because he's not good enough for the money he's getting. And for the money he's getting, I can hire somebody else better than him today. Right? So, so if I was going to spend 75 grand, it wouldn't be on him. It would be on somebody new. Yeah, yeah. And he'll go for that job on 75, but he's not good enough for 75. So he, he won't necessarily move on to the next job for money. He'll be found out. Yep. Yeah. Because he's not good enough. And so, so there's a, lots of that happens as well, I think. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is another really interesting link between the cost position of companies that reflects a particular type of productivity. Where are you on the, in the distribution of productivity? And then it's magically linked to customer willingness to pay. Where you see the moment we increase productivity, we can pay more because, you know, now in terms of output, it's actually not more expensive. And the customer experience is much is going to be much better. In the book, I talk about the Quest Laboratories and how they redid their call centers. And so they basically empower people to you know, think of tools, think of ways of working that made them so much more productive. As a result, they were able to raise compensation. So on a per call basis, they now pay exactly as much before. But guess what? The quality of the calls has also gone up. So I always instruct everyone, if you have a great idea, 
for increasing willingness to pay. Think about the ways in this in which this might also allow you to lower willingness to sell. If you have a great idea to lower willingness to sell or minimum compensation, think about the ways in which that might also increase willingness to pay. Dual advantages are so common among the most successful firms. And we were taught, at least in traditional strategic thinking, to stay away from these opportunities because they were seen as inconsistent with one another. It's interesting because you mentioned call centers and I've had uh, John Ratliff on who sold a call center business called Apple, Apple Tree Answers. And in an industry where the average staff turnover is more than 100%, in the call center business that he built, he got it down to 20%. Yeah. And so exactly that thing happened. He could put up the cost per handling, call handling, quality went up, customers were still happier, staff were happier, compensation went up. He said one of the things he did is that every time they bought a company, they had a ceremonial burning of the chairs. Oh. <laughs> the call centers always had really cheap furniture. So he put in Herman Miller Air on chairs on day one <laughs> to show the staff that he cared, right? Which is completely counterintuitive. Yes. In part, the story, I love the story, the way you tell it is because when we think about what makes a better job, in my experience working with executives, very quickly we end up talking about career paths, we end up talking about development opportunities, maybe we talk about training, but work is so many different things. And each one of these things can be made better. If you ask me to show up at the office at 9 a.m. in the morning, you condemn me to be in traffic or use public transportation at a time when the buses and trains are really congested. And so really thinking about all facets of work and then think about what are creative ways to improve the quality of work so important and they're terrible at it. I now meet many executives who tell me, you know what? Like one thing the pandemic really taught me is people value flexibility. And I'm thinking people were shouting at the top of their lungs that they wanted more flexibility. And except we said it can't be done. We're not going to do it. And for some reason, customer centricity has been so ingrained, I think, in many businesses. When I talk to corporate leaders and strategists, there's almost nothing new that I can tell them when we talk about willingness to pay. But the flip side, how do you create better, more meaningful jobs? Somehow we're very quickly at, no, we just pay more, which to my mind is just like, you have given up on all creativity, on all imagination. That is really your best move. You're just gonna pay more and forego any sort of value creation in the first place. Or then we think we sort of have to do what everybody else does. When Google uh, many months ago announced its first version of a work from home policy, the moment this announcement comes out, I see hundreds of Silicon Valley firms that say, oh yeah, in order to be competitive with Google, we, we adopt the same policy. Are you out of your mind? Do you really think that means you're going to compete with Google on compensation? Do you really think that's going to end well? No, because just like no one would launch a Me Too product, why are we creating Me Too jobs where the job seems to be the same? But ask someone in HR how much they're paying. The modal answer is we're paying market. And it's actually not even really true, but there's this really this strange sense of sameness on the work and job side 
that we don't have when it comes to thinking about customers, it's all about differentiation. It's all about standing out. It's all about being different from everyone else. On the job side, we don't really do this. We don't apply any creativity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because that's where you can stand out massively. Yeah. You know, we did, uh, we did some analysis at a business I was at a few years ago, and we said, look, if we wanted to be top quartile, it's going to cost us a lot of money at that point because <laughs> it was going to have a big impact on the payroll. But we said, look, what if we pay median? Okay, there's going to be some people who were currently underpaid. So, uh, but what if we had what we thought were the best benefits package we could find? That yeah. was probably only going to cost 5% of payroll to take every benefit everybody could find anywhere and, and, and make it available to the employee base. And then our ad stood out because the salary didn't make it stand out. And even if you were top quartile, we weren't going to stand out. But all of the benefits that we put on, all of the flexibility – that made a massive difference. Yeah. When I look at our graduates, uh, I talk to my students about the jobs that they're taking. Almost no one takes the job that pays the most. Why? <sighs> oh, because there's something else that is really attractive about the product of that firm or the mission, or you've fallen in love with one of their top managers, or you're seeing a way to really make a difference in a relatively short period of time, which matters to our graduates. And so there's this entire package and is compensation one of the factors? Yes, of course, absolutely. Money matters. But is it the one thing that drives these choices? Absolutely not. Well, I was talking to a CEO last night. He's got to 170 odd people and he still does final interview with everybody. And he said, look, everyone we interview, everyone I see said they've got three job offers and most of them then take us because I was the, ours was the only firm where the CEO did the final interview. So interesting. And it's just, and it's like that costs, I mean, it takes a bit of time, but there's no, there's no real cost to that. I mean, yeah. there's some time, but yeah. then it's differentiated. It's like, okay, they get a sense of the culture of this business and they're joining because of the culture. That's right. And it's always surprising. It's often surprising how little it takes. In the book, I talk about this experiment at the Gap where they recognize that being a retail worker in the United States is really hard because you learn of your shifts about a week before you work that particular shift. And the shifts change from week to week. Sometimes you have a lot of work. Sometimes you don't have a lot of work. It's very stressful because you can't really plan your life and your income varies from week to week by as much as 40% or so. They did the simplest thing on the planet. They used an app that allow people to trade shifts. Oh, my daughter's ill, can't be at work today. I make my shift available to someone else who would like to work a little more. Now I'm the person towards the end of the month. I need to pick up an extra, an extra couple of hours in order to make more income. I don't know, pay my mortgage or pay my bills. Now I go on the app and I see who else makes work available. One of the consequences of using this app, thousands and thousands of shifts get traded basically in no time. And then parents of children, which is my favorite statistic ever, they report sleeping much better. Why? Because life is a little less stressful. That's value creation. And there's no HR team doing that shift management. That's right. Yes. I've seen the same thing. Do I've seen Virgin Mobile in the UK do the same thing in their call centers and had a massive impact on their staff retention. Yeah. Yeah. And it's wonderful. And one of the side benefits for the company is... 
if you schedule too many people, so say you expected a truck and then the truck was delayed, so you staffed your, your staff too heavily, you can actually take shifts back without hurting anyone's income because you just take the shifts that no one wanted to work to begin with. And I've seen JetBlue do it as well on their, their remote booking people. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a matter of thinking very seriously about if people choose between two places of work, what's driving these choices? And some of the things are the kinds of things that you and I would think about right away. And then some of the things are a little less obvious and often competing on the less obvious metrics uh, can be really can be really successful. In the last third of the book or so that is about implementation, I talk about these value maps. And value maps are essentially a collection of value drivers. If I, as an employee, choose between two jobs, or I, as a customer, I choose between two companies to buy from, what's driving those choices? And, and what you see in the value maps is that it's this amazing tool that really gets you into strategic decision-making in a way that I don't think any other tool that at least I'm familiar with can do this as as well, where you then make strategic choices that both speak to your strengths, but always with an eye towards differentiation. And so companies that have done this successfully, they now see faster growth, better margins over time, just because you double down on the differentiators that make you successful to begin with. So can you give us some examples to bring that to life for people? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So take a technology consulting firm like West Monroe. So they grow very quickly, but their margins are stressed because very hard to find tech talent. They figure out that in part a better job for a subset of technologists is a job where you don't have to travel quite as much. And so you cut down on the travel. You then discover that there's a set of firms that actually like their technologies uh, technologists to have them in-house. And so you pair them up with local clients that want technology services. And that match is a match made in heaven because now you provide something that is scarce in the workplace and you give your customers something that they wanted for a long time, not remote monitoring out of somewhere where you don't really know where where your, where your consultants are, but someone who's actually in-house. And so you lower minimum compensation, willingness to sell, and you increase willingness to pay at one at the same time. The result, they're growing quite as quickly as before, but they now also are much more profitable. And so it's two things that are interesting about this example. Like in many other examples that I describe in the book, it's not a million things. It's not a million ideas. If you take the famous turnaround at Best Buy, uh, Hubert Jolie, the, the CEO who basically saved the company, he really had two ideas. One was around, how do I get faster shipping than Amazon? And that involved thinking of every store as a warehouse, which, you know, we built these big distribution centers. He said, no, no we're not going to do that. We're going to ship from every individual store. And as a result, we'll beat Amazon in shipping times. And then at the same time, he went to Microsoft and he went to all the technology vendors and he said, you can go down the Apple route and you can build these marvelous stores at millions and millions of dollars of expense, or you could just have a store inside the Best Buy store and you are where customers are at a fraction of the expense. And so he increased willingness to pay, he increased, he decreased willingness to sell. And the combination was they lost 
a little more than a billion dollars a quarter. Can you imagine? Like, I was a little surprised that anyone would actually take that job. Uh, and now they're at in excess of 20% return in investor capital. Just like an amazing turnaround story. But again, it's not the strategy meeting with 17 items. It's two ideas that really create value. And also in his book, he does some competitive shopping before he takes <laughs> the job. Yes. And it, one store is amazing and one store is awful. And he's like, we just have to make the thing consistent. And again, it's not rocket science. Yeah. It's in fact, when you when you look at the value maps, companies that really go out and they collect systematic data to do it, there's always a few surprises, maybe a value driver that ends up being more important than you had expected, or there is a value driver that you hadn't really thought of. But by and large, people's intuition about what makes employees choose a particular place of work or what makes customers choose a particular company, people's intuition is, is, pretty, is pretty okay. What they often don't know is what's the perception of customers and employees of the competition? We know what we think of the competition, but we don't really know what customers think of the competition or, or what employees think of the competition. Often, in employees, we're actually unsure about what the competition is in the first place. So there's some surprises, but do the final value maps that you use to then build your strategy, do they look radically different from what you did when you first learned about value maps and you had a first draft of what it might look like? No, it's not radically different. And then the key thing is creativity, imagination. What are the novel ways to increase willingness to pay? What are the novel ways to decrease willingness to sell at minimum compensation? We've spoken quite a bit about that willingness to sell from an employee perspective. Give me some examples from the book to share with people around willingness to pay and what people did. Willingness to pay or willingness to sell? Willingness to pay for, from, a, from the, the company perspective, uh, getting customers to pay, willingness to pay drivers. Okay. Yeah. So willingness to pay is first and foremost, we think of it as the attributes of the products. And then there are two big forces that we often forget. The first one is compliments. And the second one is network effects. Compliments in particular are really powerful. A compliment is a product or a service that increases willingness to pay for something else. And compliments are everywhere. So for instance, if I ask you, like, what's your willingness to pay for a car? I don't know. You give me some, <laughs> some figure, maybe a lot, maybe not so much. 50,000 pounds. Okay. Now I'm asking you, what's your willingness to pay for a car without compliments? No roads, no gas stations, no repair shops. Of course, it collapses right there and then. Why? Because willingness, the willingness to pay of everything depends on compliments. Uh, okay. And the trick about compliments is that they often live at some distance from your business. They're not, they're not super, super obvious. One of my favorite examples is this movie theater in Arizona. And uh, if you visit the movie theater, you would, the first thing that you notice is that there's, as usual, there's a lot of young people in the movie theater because uh, people who are young go to the movies. But then the second thing that you'll notice is lots and lots of parents. What's the secret? Oh, they offer babysitting services. So they're shifting their profit pool back and forth between the movie theater and the babysitting services. And the best part about the story is how did they come up with this idea that now seems, of course, that's like a great way to attract a pretty affluent group of customers. Well, the CEO 
had kids himself. <laughs> and only then did he discover how difficult it is go to go to the movies if, in fact, you know, you have young children and babysitting is hard to arrange. So you run this movie theater, but you worry about food, you worry about parking, you worry about babysitting services, you worry about all of these services that sort of live in the vicinity of what you do, but aren't exactly what you do. And that's that's a good way to think about the vicinity of products and services because it often leads to the discovery of compliments. It's interesting there because as soon as you start talking about cars, I started thinking about electric cars and charging yeah. up and charging points and availability of superchargers and why Tesla has to put superchargers all over the place yes. because otherwise people won't buy their cars. But also the fact, the fact that you're prepared to pay more for a Tesla than the equivalent car when the complimentary stuff is not as good or not as, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, there's, a, there's a great example of willingness to pay. I mean, it's more of a shag to own an electric yes. car. Yes. And yet some people, some fraction of the population are prepared to pay more for it. Yeah, this is in fact the, the, the strategic value of compliments is that you get to shift profit pools back and forth. Give you one of my favorite examples is, some point in time, Amazon is convinced that the future of books is eBooks, and in eBooks, there's really no differentiation. So they expect uh, lots of pricing pressure on eBooks. You almost have to give them away sometime in the future. Whenever you see a price fall, you know that willingness to pay somewhere has just gone up. Somewhere in the economy, willingness to pay has risen because when the price of a com of a core product falls, willingness to pay for the complement goes up. What's the complement for eBooks? That's, of course, the Kindle, the e-reader. Now, what I like about this story is like every one facet of this prediction is wrong. So eBooks are not really that popular. Uh, we're stuck at about 20% market share. And then the market for e-readers and tablets is, you know, crazy competitive. Everybody, your uncle comes out with a tablet. Uh, Microsoft enters, Apple enters, Lenovo enters. What does Amazon do? They go, oops, wrong prediction. Just shift the profit pool back. So they now lose money on the Kindle, about $100 or so every time you buy one. And if you last check the price of eBooks, not so different from hardcovers anymore. And yeah. you see this in companies all the time. Apple right now, shifting the profit pool from hardware to software. Why? Well, the iPhone is still an okay phone, but essentially you lost your competitive advantage in hardware. As a result, the Apple store that has quite a bit of market power, you're shifting the profit pool towards where you face less competitive pressures. And then, I mean, as you see it with car manufacturers, I suppose, where you're selling the car and then you have to sell, people then have to have the car serviced and buy new tires. So it's like, let's, let's, let's take that pain away and make that part of the initial purchase. Yeah, yeah. And that's, of course, one challenge in the transition to electric vehicles, right? Because we think they're easier to maintain. There's not that many parts. And so the complementary services that, was, that were provided by the dealerships, they're not going to be around. And so the question is, like, what is the business model of a dealership if, in fact, you want to maintain the dealership infrastructure? Uh -huh. Very interesting. Felix, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, God, do you have another five hours? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about differences in profitability and in particular looking at the academic literature, 
it's quite intimidating. It's it, it's just oh my god! It's like can I can I really be the business person who sees something novel, who sees something new? It sounds like it's maybe the purview of just a few people who are really are really good at this. Now, having done the research and having written the book, I've seen so many examples where people sometimes who don't even really think of themselves as business people first and foremost, they're just thinking about what can I do to make someone else's life better? What can I do in order to lighten someone's burden in some fashion? And the moment you have a reasonable answer, you're in business. So even though I know at this point in time in particular business doesn't always have the best reputation, but in the end, when we do it right, everything in business has to do with creating value for someone else. And interestingly, even though you know many people go into business because they think about the financial consequences and they think about, oh, maybe it's like a really great way to become really wealthy, even if that was your only motivation, the best way to get really wealthy is to think about everyone else all the time because value creation for others is what then creates ultimately profitability. Fabulous. And simpler, better or better simple? Simpler. <laughs> better, simpler. Okay. I, 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 I should have written it down. I knew I was going to get it's it wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, either, you said earlier, either way works, really. Um, yes. So that's your, book, your new book. Um, and you, are you going to be teaching this as a course? Yes, so I'm teaching uh, several courses, but what's maybe most exciting uh, is that uh, starting in the fall, in September, there's going to be a Harvard Business School online course on value-based strategy. And so you see the content that is in the book come alive with lots of examples and lots of exercises, really giving people a chance to experience what it means to be in the business of creating value-based strategy. And is there a way to pre-register for that or? Yes, you go to HBS online and there is a link to the course. We'll put that in the show way. notes. Wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And so what other books should people pick up around strategy or even creativity maybe? Oh, I think on the creativity side, probably my favorite business book ever is this book by Young Mi Moon called Different. And it's thinking about where differences come from. One is it's just beautifully, beautifully written. It's, I think it's one of, at least what I have read, like one of the most beautifully written business books. But it's also almost a meditation on where differences come from and how they manifest themselves and also the experience of differences that, that can be so different. So one example uh, that she has in the book is if you're a connoisseur, say like breakfast cereals is your thing. You go to the supermarket, you see this big aisle with breakfast cereals. And if you're the expert of in the category, all you see is differences. If I go, all I see is sameness. I can't, I can't make out. And that's like one of the challenges. Of course, every business person knows you somehow have to differentiate. But what does this really mean? Like, how is it that we find it quite difficult? And part of the answer is that experts see these small differences everywhere that are just totally, utterly meaningless to everyone else on the planet. 
as a result, having this outside perspective is really how you get to see differences. It's it, so often I'm working with B2B technology businesses and I say, why are you different? And they just list this li long <laughs> list of features and that's their expertise showing what they think is the difference. Yes. And then I say, okay, what tires are on your car? <laughs> and only what only one in 10 people can tell me what the make of tires are on their car because they just bought the car and they don't care about the tires i'm like all that shit that's just the tires on the car like nobody cares what problem are you solving why is anyone going to pay for this yeah yeah just fascinating what else what else you got uh if you like a recommendation for a novel uh madeline tien has written a book uh, don't say we have nothing which is a novel about essentially the last 50, 60 years of history in China, told through the eyes, the experiences of a family. And it's one of the most eloquent, touching novels that I have ever read. And I'm, I'd like to recommend it here, in particular at a time when China has now fallen out of favor at a speed that is really quite astounding. How did we go from all the admiration, oh my God, you lifted 500 million people out of poverty, how is that even possible? And now we seem to have this conversation that literally everything the country and its people do is out of touch and is wrong and is uh, quite possibly illegal and or shocking in some other way. And I think it her writing her writing in general reminds you of the human qualities, the human actors behind the headlines that you sometimes see in the papers or in the history books. And so that's a that's a really that's a really wonderful read. Felix, thank you very much for those. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today and your energy. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Lots of things to think about. And as always, when creativity is in play, lots of ways to laugh. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.